The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So we can start we can start with a short silent sitting. <clears throat>
last minutes of this sitting, I'd like to offer you something to reflect on. And begin, I'm going to read the description of the first precept of the five precepts. And then I'll read the description of the first of the ten skillful actions. And as you hear each one, notice what feelings arise, what sensations arise, what thoughts arise. When you hear them both, what the, what the, well, how do you compare these two? So the, in the five precepts, the first one is to undertake the training precept, to refrain, to abstain from killing, killing life. undertaking the training precept to abstain from taking the life of living beings. So here's a description of the first of the ten skillful actions. Abandoning the killing of living beings. One abstains abstains from killing living beings. With rod and weapon laid aside, with rod and weapon laid aside, gentle and kindly, one abides compassionate to all living beings. Abandoning the killing of living beings, one abstains from killing living, killing living beings. With rod and weapon laid aside, gentle and kindly, one abides compassionate to all living beings.
So, <clears throat> so two different wordings of somewhat similar precept. One is the, called the training precepts. And <clears throat> the way that the five precepts are most traditionally related to or, or understood as something we take on in a serious way is as training precepts. And the common discussion is that this is this very distinct from commandments. It's the voluntary things that are done for the sake of training. And that uh, begs the question of what it means to train. And how does it support our training, <clears throat> our practice? And the 10 skillful actions are called skillful actions. The word is kusala. In actions, it's kamma. It's called the dasa, it's ten. Dasa, kusala, kamma, pada. <clears throat> and um, and the, the title skillful is important because it suggests that uh, you know, in order, in order to know that something is skillful, you have to have some measurement or some purpose that you're measuring it against, some goal. So what is it skillful for? What is it useful for? What's it suitable for? <clears throat> and the primary the reference point in the suttas for this, there's a variety of things, but the primary one is as stepping stones on the path to liberation. Somehow that it helps us to become free. And uh, I think that... Um, Whereas the training precepts could be seen that way, but often, often enough, they're not seen as, tr as training for the purpose of liberation. They're more often seen as ways of living wisely and staying out of trouble. And if you want to be a good Buddhist, you should not do these things. And it's kind of left at that. And sometimes people will follow them somewhat as a rule base. We don't do this stuff. And in my mind, when you put the word skillful in it, it, uh, it calls in, uh, in, explicitly calls in the role of wisdom, of some bigger understanding, wider context in which we're understanding uh, these precepts, these kinds of guidelines. So in relationship to the first one, that of not killing, it said that it's not skillful to kill. It's not skillful if what you want is a, to walk a path of liberation. Um, and uh, so... Um, the thing about skillful, if you want to do something as skillful, you have to know what it's useful for. It's uh, what skillful for. And that, that turns around to, if you want that thing, then you should be interested in what gets you there. So if you want to go to San Francisco, generally it's not considered skillful to travel south. And now uh, you kind of travel north, more or less. If you want to... Um, uh, if you want to go buy groceries for your family, the, um, you know, it's probably not a good idea to go into the pawn shop. You know, that's not skillful, that's not useful when you're looking for groceries. So, um, so but if what you want is to get a, I don't know what, a, something used that you can buy at the pawn shop, maybe that it's skillful to go to the pawn shop to buy it. So, built into this notion is the idea that you want something. And if you want this, then this is skillful to do. And why I want to emphasize this is, is that um, there, you're under no obligation to want to be liberated. 
you're under no obligation to be a compassionate person. You know, there's no, you know, and that's part of the advantage and disadvantage of being part of a religion, if you will, where there is no God that has some external authority, thou shalt do this. But rather, um, the, uh, it is that if you would like something, and if you sign up for that, then you might want to consider to do these things. So if a Buddhist teacher says, you know, you know, take the precept not to kill, I would like to understand that in the context that's assumed that you are interested in a certain goal. And this goal is, uh, uh, in order to attain this goal, these are the activities which are useful to do. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Have I said it enough now? So in that way, they're not commandments and not obligations, but something that because you have an interest to do something, then this is what's required for that. So the uh, 10 skillful actions. The first one is abandoning, killing a living beings. Abstain, one abstains from killing living beings. With rod and weapon laid aside, gentle and kindly, one abides compassionate to all living beings. <clears throat> so this is different than the five precepts where <clears throat> the first precept is don't kill. Here, there's more asked of us than just not to kill. We're asked to abide, living compassionate to all beings, to be kindly, to be gentle. And um, what is the connection between a, uh, a path of liberation and not killing? What's the connection between a path of liberation and being gentle, kind, and compassionate? That's the question. Why, why should we bother not killing? I mean, you know, I want to be free, and if I'm really free, I'll just kill when I feel like it. Why, why is not killing useful for this path? And why is being compassionate useful for this path? That's the question. I was hoping to get some really good answers from you. <clears throat> I need help. So, no, not now, They're not this way. So what I would like to do, suggest, is that uh, we divide the room in two. And the group of people who are on the left side, uh, uh, you'll do a subgroup, not, not just a big group, but some smaller group, but a subset of you will do the question of what, um, uh, what is it about not killing that supports the path of liberation? And the, uh, the other group here on the right, my right, will answer the question, what is it about compassion that supports a path of liberation? That make sense? So what I thought would maybe um, groups of five. And, um, and so, um, um, and just go around and come up with ideas, brainstorm, and then in your group of five, one person takes notes. And uh, when you guys have come up with three or four, come up, you know, decide on three or four really good reasons. And then we'll share it with everyone together when we come back. Does that make sense? So I think that we'll just divide the room like this. So, so if it's okay to separate husband and wife? Yes. <laughs> the husband can be do the compassion part. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
And uh, so just do, divide it this way. And then, so those of you on this side, if you can form, I, I'd say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. How about groups of four? Um, and then, uh, so I think it'll be groups of four, maybe one group of five. And then let's see, maybe it's groups of four over here and see how that looks, the numbers. Okay? So let's come back. And then this time when we come back, uh, let's ar- arrange ourselves in a circle. You can either, so that both the chairs and the pe- four people are all kind of together in the circle. Maybe up, the, up on the stage too, if you can join us, we all sit in a circle. You're welcome to sit in the chair. You can just, just bring the chairs up in here, around. And can, we, can we kind of make them circles wherever we're, we're all in it? Yeah, it, chairs can come into the circle. Maybe, Don, if, if, you got, if everybody can move down here a little bit, then it's easier for the people with chairs there to get into the corner. David also getting to the circle. Great, thank you. This is this is nice, Co- cozier, more more like we're all grouped together now. It's nice. So. Um, so it'd be nice to hear from the reporter from each group. Uh, maybe I see some some lists seem to be very long. So maybe pick pick the top three. Of uh, what is it about not killing that supports the path to liberation? So which groups had that? You want to, you, you have the mic, Don, and you have the list. So yes, I guess I'll start <laughs> then. So. Um, Kind of overall three or four areas we looked at. One is the effect that it has on the person causing the killing. Um, that it blocked the mind from being calm or clear. Um, guilt or other obstacles, static, could arise. And um, that it was one of the most powerful conditionings for the hindrances or for the kind of three roots of greed, hate, and delusion to actually act on them. And this is one of the most powerful actions that we can do, is killing. The second area was social repercussions. Um, So by promoting violence, we are then conditioning those around us, whether it's an immediate relationship or a group or a community, to be more violent. And that spreads the obstacles for any kind of peace, not just from the person, but to everyone around them, and then back to the person from them. And um, 
I guess the third area we really explored was um, killing parts of ourselves. So we took it kind of more to a metaphorical place. Um, when we objectify people, shut them out, and that kind of thing, that that blocks the capacity to relate to ourselves and those around us in any kind of real, honest, visceral way. There's more, but I'll leave it at that. Let me pass the mic around and then see if the next, the next, reverse, next group can... Um, that was really just about what we did. I like the way you organized that when you reported. Um, one <clears throat> further point that was made in our group was um, to extend out the concept of killing um, and not take it literally, but the killing of spirit, autonomy, of those kinds of issues. And um, then... <clears throat> the further that you move on the path of liberation, um, the desire and need for that kind of behavior begins to totally dis- diminish and disappear. Great, thank you. We covered some of the... We covered some of the same areas um, the first one being the the mindset that one has in order to kill, um, and that mindset would be beset with um, fear and aversion and attachment to uh, particular ideas or thoughts and would result in guilt so that killing would really impact the the mind of the actor. And then um, we talked about uh, compassion and um, seeing oneself as a separate being. If one is compassionate, then one sees oneself in others. And to kill would mean to kill something in oneself. And we decided that um, killing another being is a statement that you're separate from that being. So it um, reinforces the I and the me, uh, the self um, idea, as opposed to being part of the overall web of life. Thank you. Now we get to hear about compassion. Oh, wait. Okay. Oh, wait. Um, And and we also discussed, is is there um, justified killing? You know, what about that? And are there some um, situations in which the most skillful thing to do would be to kill? We didn't come to any conclusions. Um, our group uh, see in in supporting compassion we found we sort of uh, came up with let's see a few things here the default position of uh, 
of our default position is a compassionate, is in compassion. And uh, in that sense, mindfulness supports compassion. Uh, just being clear. Um, David put it as the ground of being or feeling unconditioned supports compassion. For him, it was more of a feeling of, of the feeling tones of it. Um, and the other, another point was feeling connection to others supports compassion and vice versa. Great, thank you. So I just have a couple of random notes and then we can all add in others if, if I left anything out. Um, Hold it closer to your mouth. Okay. Can you hear it? Is this any better? That's yeah. better. Okay, I can even hear that. Okay. So I'm reading these verbatim um, connections. If everyone were compassionate, then they would be liberated. It would be better for a better place for everyone to live in, a world to live in. Um, mindfulness creates the condition for compassion, and the connection goes back and forth. I think that was the distillation of a lot of other discussion, but this was the, the simplified version of, of saying that with mindfulness, you, um, the condition of mindfulness creates the condition for compassion. Um, someone said, if I feel more compassionate, then I suffer less as well. Um, if you have internal motivation to be compassionate, then it moves you from suffering to liberation, assuming that's your goal, is to be liberated. Is anything else we wanted to add? So our group uh, noted that life can be brutal and one needs compassion to be able to see deeply into what's happening without being harmed by it. Um, so the importance of compassion is in not turning away from the difficulty of what's going on in the world and what's going on in oneself. And it, that we thought it took compassion not to avert uh, your gaze from the pain that's occurring. So um, ultimately there was something that felt developmental that suffering is the inability to see what's happening and the longer uh, we practiced and allowed the more we were able to open to what was happening including things like shame and see it being able to see it is not suffering from it. Um, so the pain um, and suffering we see in the world becomes part of what humans do, not me, not mine, just part of what's happening. Great, thank you. <clears throat> so um, killing, <clears throat> I think uh, most of us are involved in killing, indirectly or directly. Uh, sometimes it's not intentional. You don't, you know, intending to kill any insects when you drive your car, but the splash in the windowsill happens and, and you realize that your car has, your car has killed some insect. <laughs> the, um, but one of the, I think, more, I think more dramatic forms of, you know, massive killing that you're involved 
once in a while may be involved in is antibiotics. Right? You have this, you have this, you know, kill tremendous amount of bacteria so that you could live. And so most people don't question the ethics of that. It just seems like that's an obvious thing to do. Um, on, the, on another end of the extreme, um, most people probably come to IMC uh, are pretty much opposed to ha- having humans killed. Even um, capital punishment, many people here feel like that's not right. And, um, but if you go even more extreme, like even the people who want capital punishment, they probably, you know, there's people in their family they don't want, don't want to see killed, even though the enemy can be killed. You know, there's, there's a range, right? There are, uh, in that range, uh, you start looking at a range, there are people who are willing to kill uh, uh, cattle for meat, but they're not willing to uh, kill their dog or kill a horse because we have a different feeling, attitude to that. Somehow that's a little bit more wrong over there towards the, the dog or the, the horse. When I was living in the monastery, <clears throat> I would, uh, if a mosquito came into my room, I would uh, go chasing it and very carefully cup it in my two hands. And then I would carry it outside and release it outside. Uh, because the idea of killing the mosquito was just so abhorrent to me. The idea that I just, I just couldn't do that. But I didn't want to live with it either in the room. So I would carefully, you know, it took a while sometimes to catch it and then take it outside. But then um, my younger son gets a very a dramatic reaction to mosquito bites. He swells up dramatically. And so um, I, I've, a couple of times when there's a mosquito on him or dangerously close to him, I've killed the mosquito more recently because of the nature of my son, right? I would, don't want to kill mosquitoes, but there's a trade-off, right? So you understand there's a range, and different people fit on that range in different places. Some people, cattle are okay, but horses are not. Some people, cattle are not okay, but chickens are okay. Some people, chickens are okay for them, but <clears throat> bacteria are not. Or maybe mosquitoes are not, or the termites in the house are okay. <clears throat> but uh, some people, you know, it goes down, right? So to, there's very few people who say, well, I'm not going to be involved in killing bacteria. So you get this range, right? How would you encourage or train someone or help shift someone so they go, <clears throat> wherever they're at, they move down the range towards killing less? That's the question for you. How would you go about helping someone, not, not coerce them, not force them, not bribe them? How could you train someone? How could you, what, would you, what, what, what way would you help someone Shift that, shift their range towards the direction of less killing. I think it's powerful to see someone who is not killing something that you would normally kill, the, the gentleness of that. So the witnessing of something else. Someone just, else just doing as that. An, an example, yeah. Right. You, you, you can move someone else that, in that direction by your own example. Is that what you mean by how you can help other people? Yeah, that, that's a great, a great response. So you, if someone can witness someone else uh, living a different way, showing a different model, different example, that can shift. Yeah. I think education is, is very helpful if you say 
don't understand ant colonies, then you might not have any compassion for them and just want them gone. But if you understood the complexity of their society and how they work and all the almost magical things that uh-huh. are going are taking place there, then you might have second thoughts about mm-hmm. killing that ant colony, for example. Right. So, you know, if you... Yeah, so, you know, so like um, in some places, bears would be... Uh, you don't want the bears there, they're dangerous, but if you take the bears away, then there's no predators for the deer, and the deer's population skyrocks, and that changes the local vegetation, which changes the local erosion, which, cha- you know. So you realize the education that teaches you that there's a interconnected network, and everyone has their pieces, so maybe we shouldn't kill those, the wolves or something as easily. Go ahead, go ahead. So, um one of the things that I've found um, helps me, me further down that chain, and I've noticed it in others as well, is to actually open up to the suffering that's being caused by the killing. So, for example, maybe someone who eats a lot of steak or is fine with a horse dying um, is fine with it in the abstract, but if they see the actual suffering of the being involved, it might be a completely different story. Take them to a slaughterhouse. I recently read that the slaughterhouse in the United States are like hell realms. You know, so if you actually see, see, it's a whole different thing. Yes? Uh, yes. Um, I have a troubling example of, uh, and it's troubled me for a while, I lived through Vietnam and stuff, but uh, we're all taxpayers here, and we all support all that money. A lot of it goes to the war machine. And so what to do about that? Um, it's been perplexing for me for years. So that's where, again, it could be a range, because um, uh, you know, where do we where do we fit in that range of what, what's allowable? Our government, in its wisdom, do we just uh, understand that they have certain wisdom and perspective that we have to go along with, or how do we not participate? In what way do we not participate? I knew a, a friend of mine once who put all his taxes in escrow. He wrote a letter to the IRS, says it's there for you, and you'll get it when you stop. You know the. Uh, having, you know, fighting a war, you know, stop the wars. Was he prosecuted? No, I don't know what I don't know what happened, but then he wasn't, wasn't prosecuted. <clears throat> so, at, at the risk of being sounding provocative, start with the questions: Why do you want to stop them or move them along the spectrum? And that leads to. If I think that I active, that I see their suffering as a result of that, and I may therefore out of compassion want to educate them and such, yeah. then a number of these, either showing them or modeling them. But if it's because it bothers me that they're killing, I mean, I, I'm not sure why we would sort of necessarily just want to move everyone there because it bothers us. Oh, they're, yeah, they're, yeah. They're killing. I think a lot of this is sometimes sort of a mixed sort of motivation on our part. Uh-huh. I think it's a great point you raised. I appreciate it a lot. <clears throat> and what I'd like to ask you is uh, uh, go along with the exercise for now. And, and uh, because because it isn't it isn't so much that we're tr- it isn't so much that I want you to learn how to get people other people those other people to switch down the, 
But I think what's interesting for me is that we begin appreciating the causes and conditions that might shift, shift these things for people one way or the other. And, and, and it happens to us as well. So, and that's really what interests me. What, you know, if, how do you want to live your life? And what are the conditions inside of you that could shift you in the direction that you like? Um, you know, so for me, you know, I used to uh, take the mosquitoes and take them outside. And now in the last couple of years, a couple of times I've killed mosquitoes. So I've kind of gone towards the direction of killing. And I, I don't feel good about that. But I, you know, I'm trying to study and understand the, you know, what is it, what goes on inside of me and what happens in that equation where I decide what to do. So, and, so just then to give, I guess, two things I already heard were um, modeling and also uh, showing them the effect of Yeah. Mm. or how it affects me. And sort of that starts a dialogue that maybe they'll listen to more than just saying, oh, you shouldn't do it. Uh-huh. I'm modeling it. So they see the consequence. Sort of yeah, so they see the consequence both in the, you know, out there, but also in their friend, if you're their friend, and they find out that you're distressed by seeing that and being part of it then that might have an impact. They might take that into account. Like if it's your really close friend and, you know, you say you're really disturbed by this, then maybe next time they invite you over for dinner, maybe they won't serve meat because they take you into account. Well, I mean, even less than saying that it disturbs me when you do it is to sort of say, you know, this is how I got there because I used to do this. I see, nice. Nice. It's right there. Go ahead. I'm not sure this is exactly on point, but it seems to me that um, if the goal is liberation, if that's the highest goal, then especially when it comes to something like activism, I guess what's really important is uh, how I feel or how it affects me to be involved in taking an action. So it may be that somebody else is wrong, but if I'm going to act because there's something about it I hate, then that's going to take me away from the possibility of liberation. So it becomes a little more complicated Mm -hmm. because of that. Yes, I think that's right. So motivation is very important. And um, so in Buddhism, there's a very strong emphasis on not killing. And um, the kind of uh, is connected to uh, Indian uh, uh, sensibility for ahimsa, for uh, nonviolence. And uh, the Jains, another religion that's contemporary to Buddhism, to the Buddha, had a very strong ahimsa, nonviolent kind of emphasis. Buddhism doesn't have it as strong as the Jains, but it's there as an important thing. And the primary thing that's said about killing, what makes something killing as an ethical thing is whether it's intentionally done. Is, the, is if you intentionally kill, then, or encourage someone to kill, then it's an unethical activity. 
in, when I was in Southeast Asia and Theravadan countries, one of the primary moral consideration that the teachers there seemed to give around this kind of thing was the impact that it had on the doer. And so they, they, they were very clear. They said you should, you know, they didn't want anyone to involve in helping with euth- euthanasia because those teachers in, in Burma thought it was inconceivable them, for them that someone could help someone else die without some flicker of, Ill, of hate, of aversion operating. And so that creates a very bad karma for the person who does the helping. So that was the, 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 that was the direction in which the consideration tended to go. Other people, the consideration goes in a different direction or more inclusive, and that is what is the compassionate thing, supportive thing for the other? So there, in the example of euthanasia, rather than being concerned about your own karma, uh, the concern is more how does it support what's helpful for this person that I'm trying to help, my relative, my family, or something like that. And so the consideration is, is, uh, is compassion. Is, and, so, and some people say you have to hold these two together. Uh, it can't, shouldn't be one or the other because if you do one or the other, it blinds you from the consequences that it might have. But there's a strong, very strong uh, uh, teaching about try to avoid killing. Um, monastics have, you know, Buddhist monastics have a very high order for not doing that. If, they, if a monastic kills someone, then they no longer can be a monastic. Just they're kind of, that's it. They're kind of done for life. And for someone whose path is the monastic path, um, that's kind of devastating to have to lose that possibility. The, um, um, but then, you know, but there's all these buts. You know, so, but, you know, what about the buts? So, for example, uh, at the time of the Buddha, he had a cousin, Devadatta, who came to him and said, um, please make a rule that monastics have to be vegetarian because we shouldn't be involved with killing. And the Buddha said, no, I'm not going to do that. And um, but what he did do, he said, if, an an- <clears throat> if you know <clears throat> or you suspect that an animal was killed in order to feed you, <clears throat> then you cannot eat that animal, that meat. But if uh, someone has meat in their kitchen, they went, you know, for whatever reason they have it there, and they want to share their food with the monastic, the monastic is obligated to receive the food that's there and not to cause a burden or problem for the lay people who are offering food. And, um, and there's nothing unethical about taking food that was killed for other purposes. It's just the leftover food is given to you. So there, you know, so there begins to kind of, you know, there's a but there, but, you know, there's, are you, are you then involved in killing or not by eating meat that someone else killed. When I was in the monastery in Burma, they ate a tremendous amount of pork. And uh, it was kind of astounding how much pork was eaten there. And part, it was a very large monastery. They, sometimes they probably had a thousand monks there and 2,000 nuns. And sometimes they had you know, a few thousand visitors meditating there. It was a, like a college campus and, um, in size. And uh, they served enough pork for all of those people. So I asked the abbot one day, I said, you know, in America we have this um, uh, supply and demand principle. And since you guys, since the monastery, the lay people in the monastery buy so much pork, the demand is pretty high. It's hard to imagine that someone's not taking that into account when, the, you know, every day, when, every morning when they kill pigs to have enough for the, mon- you know, for the local market 
you're adding to the demand, and so that means there has to be more supply, and that means there's more pigs killed. So that made good sense to me. Uh, he just couldn't, he wouldn't understand. He, I, I, I had the impression he didn't want to understand. <laughs> he just, you know, he wasn't going to go there at all. And um, so they had, you know, they continued having all this pork. They didn't see a problem with it. In the West, there's many people, many, not, not, not all, not, by all means, not all, but there's a fair percentage of Buddhists in the West who feel very strongly about the vegetarian thing because they feel, yes, they're not intending to kill any animal, but even eating an animal, they're part of a, a, a system that involves killing of animals, and they don't want to be part of that system. Or the war machine, you know, you're part of, you're paying taxes, you're not, you're not intending to kill anyone anywhere, but uh, you don't want to be part of a system because we feel, some people feel and feel somehow um, responsible for that and want to, you know, you know not, not be involved. So where do we, where do we have the line? How do we consider this issue of not killing? How do we understand it? And what interests me in terms of this uh, day here and this training is certainly not to come down with a rule uh, Buddhists should not kill. But rather, I'm interested in the, uh, uh, how is it that we can heighten their ethical sensitivity so that we're less likely to kill? Uh, how can we heighten the ethical sensitivity so that when we come to a situation that normally we would be involved in killing, we'll say, I think I'm going to look for another solution. So, you know, the ants come pouring into your house. Uh, it's easy to go out and get <coughs> uh, <coughs> uh, ant poison, and that takes care of the problem pretty quickly. Um, the other options, of, you know, non-lethal options around ants in the kitchen, uh, uh, generally take a lot of work. So how much work are you willing to do? To, you know, what point? And what does it take to be more concerned about the ants? Uh, that you don't kill them, but rather be willing to do some other approach. Um, so, uh, is it motivating for, for you, or for the theoretical person, to cultivate greater ethical sensitivity so that the motivation not to kill is not a rule-based practice, but rather a natural expression of the sensitivity we have? Did I make that, is that clear? So what would it take someone to be motivated to cultivate greater ethical sensitivity so, they, so that they would end up not being involved in killing or lessen the amount that they're involved in? Yes? I think that um, you have to look at the total person. What came to mind is you have to look at the total person and their circumstances. If I'm stressed and other things in my life aren't working, I'm really not going to care about the ants on my counter because they're going to take a very low priority. So for me, it's about raising consciousness in all areas of our life and beginning to understand the pressures that we're all under from a bigger point of view so that I have the perspective to think about the ants. Mm. So what's the, yeah, that's great. But what's that bigger point of view? Well, the bigger point of view is to 
understand myself well enough so that I can handle the pressures of my everyday life to be calm enough to care about the ants. I, I guess what I'm saying is that um, if I observe someone that's stressed or myself that's stressed, um, the hierarchy diminishes pretty quickly because yes. it's survival, not of the ant, but of me. Right. Right. <laughs> and I mean that in an emotional sense. Um, so as everyone, as you were speaking and everyone was speaking, I was thinking self-care seems to be a great motivation to be able to take things down and appreciate uh, not killing on the level that we're talking about. So a person could be motivated to be more ethical, and so that, uh, because of that motivation, they dedicate themselves to greater self-care. Mm -hmm. Someone could be more interested in self-care and as a consequence of that self-care end up being a person who is more ethical. Yeah. Isn't it nice that way? It doesn't matter where you start. Hello? Okay. So, um, kind of in addition to what you said, if a person is stressed and overwhelmed, um, one way to maybe, since all the other good ones have been taken, <laughs> um, which I fully agree with, um, one way to maybe push them a little further along the line is to kind of find a way to benefit that person or help relieve the stress so they have the space and opportunity. And then maybe find a way to appeal to something that would help them like for example if they are going to go by raid you know you might just say oh. and then you help them relieve some of their stress in other ways you could you know tell them how raid is toxic to your kids or so, you know just find a way to appeal to something that they value and care about that's how i became vegan i was just going to say help the person have an experience of, of meditating and just and just feel what it feels like to be very connected to themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that worked for me uh, was to do some practices in gratitude. So even silently thanking your, for the meal you have in front of you. Uh, so not just for the vegetables, but for the, you know, the people who farm the vegetables, the people who put it in the truck, the people who sold it to you. Uh, waking up in the morning, say thank you for this day. Before you go to bed, say thank you for this day. Uh, and slowly one has an appreciation for what that web of life, but also uh, just for being alive. And I think that spark, that, that notion that, hey, I'm alive, and there's this thing over there that's alive, and that's also really cool. Um, that awareness starts to kind of grow when you... Um, you just, yeah, you start to value it more and you're, you're less likely to, you know, take another life, at least without thinking about it for a second. One of the nice things, thank you, one of the nice things about what you reminded me about is that, it's kind of, I don't know if it's education, but it's certainly interest. How, how wide, how broad is the world we live in? Because if we're stressed, the world can be very closed in. But then there's, you know, the consequences of our lives can ripple out. Things we consume, a variety of things, goes out. And how far do we consider? Do we consider the 
the children of the farmer that uh, grows the food that we eat? And are we somehow connected to them? And our, our choices of consumption affect you know, what happens in the Central Valley and is what happens in Central Valley part of our world that we consider? Do, do we, are part of our world what happens in Malaysia? And uh, when we get products from Malaysia and how do we take that into account? At some point it becomes, uh, requires education. You know, and so in order to really take, res- and so how, how much responsibility do we take beyond what we can see? And... Um, I would uh, emphasize the aspect of community, I think, is so important to the um, putting into action the, the respect for the interdependence of everything. Um, because when I think of killing, you can get, um, there's so many layers to the idea, but of like our consumption, our trash, and you know what that contributes to conditions for people. Of, on the other side of the globe. But I know when I'm with friends or uh, my neighbors, it seems that everyone really does have that regard, but it, it's not really fully realized into action unless you're together, because otherwise it seems very overwhelming to think of what you could possibly do. But when I'm with people in my neighborhood or with my friends, we all seem to have that caring, and uh, we'll do things like, yeah, we're not going to be buying clothes so much and um, going and consuming a lot of things, or we're, well, let's recycle batteries in our, in our condominium and do, do things like that. So I think that just that aspect of community in regards to um, not being destructive mm-hmm. to, to the planet is so, so, a way of supporting that. So community support, community through community understanding is the wider network of what we're involved in. Yeah, great. Thank you. The um, so, what are your thoughts? Any questions or thoughts around this? wanted to ask you a little further about the monks that had to disrobe because they had killed. Was that a uh, kind of a pragmatic decision for the community about concern that the person having harmed would play out more hindrances in the community? Or is there some... It seems if that monk regrets the killing, it wouldn't seem compassionate to disrobe the monk. Well, it's it's built into the monastic rules. It's not it's not a community decision. It's, it's um, the, there are five uh, five the five most serious precepts for a monk. Are if the uh, if they break those precepts, it's they're said to be defeated. And so, if you injure an enlightened person, if you kill a parent, yeah, I think if you. Uh, I, um, I don't remember what they all are, but the killing of another human being, uh, 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 sexual intercourse, um, that you do those things, it's like, uh, you don't have to, you communi- your community doesn't have to excommunicate you or kick you out or disrobe you. You're just like, it's just somehow, 
you're automatically not a monk anymore. It, it makes a very strong um, thing for the person to have in their mind right. when they take any action. Yeah. Yeah. So for some reason, the monastic tradition holds this a very high bar around these, these what's called the five rules of defeat. Accidents? Oh, if it, oh, accidental hurting or killing someone. It's, a, uh, it's very clearly understood that in order for uh, it to be killing, it has to be, uh, in terms of an ethical issue, it has to be done intentionally. So if you step on an ant or if you accidentally kill someone, then there's no ethical breach. It's just tragic, but it's not an ethical breach. So a monk who's involved accidentally killing someone else I think there'll be no breach in terms of the monastic rules. And is this during the Buddhist time? Because I think, uh, I can't pronounce his name well, Alagobi? Uh, Angulimala? The, Angulimala, yes, Angulimala. Yeah, so, so, so there's a uh, story, kind of a fable, of a mass murderer who uh, was converted by the Buddha and became a monk and then became fully awakened. So the idea, the idea there, the idea there that his, his, uh, he wasn't a monk already, but there he could um, somehow be killing, was not a uh, didn't keep him back from spiritual progress. There's another story, probably also a fable, of a of a king who who became king by killing his father, and there it said that because of that deed, killing his father, that was so so horrendous that for him, he cannot make a lot of spiritual progress. He's limited, held back in this lifetime. Whether these fables you know, point to something that's real, I don't know. But uh, I, I, don't know. I don't know how much we have to concern ourselves with these kinds of karma stories. So, so hold them as fables? Yeah, you can hold them as fables and, and hold them in ways that are useful. So if it's uh, if it keeps you from killing your father, then you know it's a, it's a good story, and uh, and if it if it helps you if it helps provide spiritual care to someone on death row to realize that they can change and grow and be reformed, then I think the story on Gulimala is a good story to support that. Yes. How did the ten skillful acts? Um, how did they get put together? Did the Buddha talk about them? He talked about the eightfold path, and they seem very integrated into the eightfold path. Um, but yeah, how I suppose did, it could be. I think that. Um, I don't know how they came to be. I don't know there was any, there's no evidence of them being done, you know, step by step or at a time when he was, they were organized. And it's possible that they were a pre-existing list that existed in the religious world of the Buddha because a number of things that we now think of Buddhists as being Buddhist were just part of the religious environment of the time. And so, you know, he just, it was just part of how people saw things. Um, the five precepts some, precepts, some people think, were just Indian kind of lists that people had, and, and uh, the Buddha either uh, just accepted it or maybe tweaked it a little bit. Um, so, I, but I don't know. I have no idea about these ten, where they come from, or whether the Buddha came up came up with it himself. 
Um, it's nice that they have this organized around body, speech, and mind. And uh, the fact that it includes the mind means that um, uh, it's a higher, uh, uh, higher level of personal training and accountability than just our behavior. Right? I mean, someone could avoid stealing but still be driven by greed. But here we're, sit- here we're told you know, to give up greed as well. I find it fascinating, <clears throat> uh, kind of awesome, uh, the kind of ethical sensitivity that people have who have been on a retreat. I think that uh, the kind of, when if you, if you, people who go on a, on a silent retreat and are practicing really intently, and uh, um, there's a way in which they're, which um, uh, they are more and they're quite incapable of doing things that in a stressful situation they'd be quite capable of. The, the, if they were involved in killing an ant, uh, you know, if, if the manager of the retreat came to them and said, you know, we need you to do a little work meditation, special one we have, and we need you to go and stomp the snails in the garden because we shouldn't have any snails, you know, and there's, you know, there's probably 50 of them in the garden. Go find them and stomp on them because we can't have snails in the garden. You know, it would be devastating. I mean, I think it would be actually, actually traumatic to some people and, uh, in the context of a retreat to do such an act. It just, there's something about the retreat environment that creates a very heightened uh, sensitivity to wanting to be ethical and feels such a, uh, so, um, such a transgression to one's own inner sensibility to be involved in lying or stealing or killing or harming. and It's quite dramatic. Why is that? What is it about uh, being on retreat and practicing that way that makes a person so sensitive to ethics? This was actually something that flitted across my mind earlier, but the subject changed. It seems that there's, um, in my own experience, something about developing exquisite sensitivity within ourselves in general that allows for a much broader application of compassion or empathy for the impact of our actions, no matter how subtle in someone else. Or so a heightened, else. Sense, heightened sense of compassion? Well, and a heightened sense of sensitivity is the ground for that, yeah. Like yeah. The, the seeing within. goes along with what you were saying, of just a heightened sensitivity to one's own suffering. And um, you know, just uh, you know, subtler and subtler levels of suffering and, and, and uh, sometimes desperately wanting to be free from that. So the slightest movement towards being unethical on retreat just feels like we're caught. It, feel, it feels like a violence to ourselves. Or even just thoughts of anger, thoughts even, of greed. Even thoughts of it, yeah. yeah. Whereas in a busy, stressful life, you know, you hardly notice that you're angry or you're so busy being angry that you, you know, the, the, 
the, what it, you know, the consequence on you are ins- insignificant. But on a retreat, to, to really feel it there. There's something about the moment-to-moment watching that seems to create it uh, or enable it because in our daily lives often there's a filter we're seeing through. So it may be something we're going to do or something we're thinking about or something we're doing. And all we're doing on a retreat is watching our minds and bodies and hearts moment-to-moment. And so whatever occurs in that moment, we're actually seeing it. So if it's, you know, we can see something happen in someone else or another creature, or we can see it happen in ourselves. So it just makes me aware of how much we can brush past with all these filters in daily life. I think, um, you know, dovetailing off of what Liz is saying, you know, in our society, we have agreed upon way of behaving when you go on retreat, you drop out of that. You have the opportunity to drop out of it. And that um, practice really, over time, creates a, a softening of the heart or an awareness of the heart, which, for me at least, um, moves me to respond differently, basically. So over time, the practice itself tenderizes. Uh-huh. Um, and then I'm more sensitive to myself and others around me, other beings and insects and such. Thank you. Yes. Um, basically, maybe just another way of saying the same things is... Um, for me, when the more attentive, the more attention I give to something, and the more understanding I have of that thing, the more I appreciate it and love it. And for a retreat, that's what I'm doing for myself. And so, when I feel more loving, I it automatically extends to other people and other things, and um, then it's harder to be har- more harmful. Well, well, I really resonated with what you had mentioned before, I think it was earlier today, about when you were in retreat and something came up and it was just like you had so much light in you that it wasn't possible to go to that dark place or have the lust or whatever it was. Uh, My own experience is, especially near the end of a retreat, is very objective. I mean, it's like there, you know, you just have this white carpet and uh, you spill some black paint on it. I mean, it's just, it's there, you know, and on occasion I've still gone ahead and did something because I had to or because I didn't care because uh, I was really young or whatever, but uh, it's just there. There's, and it's, uh, it's kind of beautiful in a way because you see that there's this very objective thing there in the universe where there is such a thing as going against that nature. One of the uh, <clears throat> things that becomes very clear in retreats, I think it's maybe more so for a teacher than people, practitioners in the middle of their own practice, is that um, um, 
in the moment to moment, the practice of mindfulness is to be present for each moment as it's being lived and to see it clearly. And when we get caught up in greed, hate, and delusion, then we're out of the stream of the present moment because there's some kind of preoccupation, some kind of fixation, some kind of thought pattern, the motivation that's kind of taken over. And, um, And so if we want to come back to the present moment, we need to let go of those of greed, hate, and delusion. And so no matter how bad things get on retreat, uh, uh, challenge people are, it tends to kind of move them back t- away from ways of being preoccupied with these, uh, what's called these um, poison roots, these, these roots of unwholesome behavior. And the consequence is that on retreat, uh, t- uh, we tend to see the best in people. Because when, the, when greed, hate, and delusion are no longer operating, then it's almost like there's inner space for a kindness, generosity, wisdom to operate. And so part of this, uh, the ecology of ethics in Buddhism is to focus on what's called the roots. The, so the roots of unskillful unethical behavior is considered to be greed, hate, and delusion. And the roots of skillful behavior is generosity and uh, kindness or friendliness and uh, wisdom. And so how do these roots operate in a person? How do we address these roots? And the function, the purpose of mindfulness ultimately is to get down there and uh, uproot the roots of greed, hate, and delusion. And the way I see it is that uh, greed, hate, and delusion are... I like to think of them as um, more surface activities of the mind. They they take a lot of work. A certain kind of aspect of our mind has to be active and being engaged. And it takes work. Whereas uh, uh, the the kind of uh, uh, friendliness, generosity, and wisdom that comes out of practice doesn't take work. It's more like it's just there without having to try. And so as we practice and kind of facing and get underneath, underneath the surface of the ethical behaviors, so we're not evaluating and judging ethical behaviors, is it ethical or not ethical, but we're looking at the motivation underneath it, then we're evaluating what is the motivation? Is the motivation ethical or is the or the motivation skillful? And if the motivation is based on greed, hate, and delusion, then um, to see that that is harmful to us, see that preoccupies us, it's painful, and then to learn how to uproot that to be without it. And then when we're without it, it's as if, I don't know if it's true, but it's as if, then what's left is uh, the skillful, the wholesome, or the beautiful qualities of heart ready to operate. Yes? Um, I'm kind of interested in the negative energy that comes up. Like I was a little bit drowsy and then something was said that produced a negative reaction in me. And I noticed that it woke me up. (laughs) And um, that that energy is still there. But, you know, the question came up in my mind is because of the topic, the skillful way of working with that energy. So it's not destructive that it goes more in the direction of liberation so I'm very interested in because I've noticed um, 
like with anger when it comes up, there's so much energy available that could be very productive, you know, like a, I can clean my whole house <laughs> um, when I'm angry. <laughs> so I just wondered if you'd like to comment. So some people will justify anger because of the consequences it can produce. And it, it makes me a little bit sad to hear that when people justify anger because it has these consequences they like, like cleaning their house or getting someone to stop doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Because the way it's sad is that um, sometimes uh, it's so easy to go for anger. It's kind of like a quick fix. It's like getting a gun. That was a quick fix, supposedly. Uh, but maybe there are other ways of accomplishing the same thing. Maybe there's ways of waking up. Maybe there's ways of cleaning your house as energetically as... So maybe there are ways of, of uh, fighting for social justice that are just as energetic um, as you would with anger, but are done from compassion or done other ways. And so, uh, 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 not justifying anger because of its consequences, but realizing that the consequences might be desirable, and then looking for other ways of having the same effect. Yeah, but is that really, the, uh, that's what I'm questioning, is that really um, um, necessary? Or can one find, rather than using anger in a beneficial way, can one, uh, to have, an, have a beneficial effect, can one find another motivation to get the same effect? Because one of the things that happens is if we act on any motivation at all, we tend to strengthen that motivation. So if we act with the energy of anger, even if, say, we're angry at a, some person, that, uh, but the result is we clean our house, uh, I think that if we're kind of using that energy, I think that then we're actually uh, reinforcing the tendency to be angry. Okay. So I think finding, finding another way to clean the house that's you know, engaging and you know, as productive uh, it would be preferable, I would think. Okay. You're not satisfied. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I didn't understand you, or. Uh, no, it's it's just that um, I think you're assuming that one can uproot all of this negative energy and have it not be there, and in my life it comes up. And then I'm very interested in now what? Should I should I allow it to go into hatred of that person who said that that what set me off? Or um, can that energy be used for a beneficial 
I see. Because it reminds you to wake up. I mean, you're definitely more, relatively more present than when you're, you're drowsy. So the question is, if you wake, if you, if, if you, I guess if you, you're not, you're not trying to make yourself angry in order to wake up. But if you get angry and you, you wake up, then, then, then stay awake rather than say, you know, let go of the anger and go back to sleep. Right, stay awake. Stay awake. Because actually the energy in me right now is the energy that was provoked by the statement that was made where I had a negative reaction. To yeah. That energy is still in me but I'm trying to work with it in a way that I, I am, I'm awake and I'm present and I'm with all of you and um, wishing to contribute, you know, to... So you're riding the wave. <laughs> the wave came and you're riding it. Because <laughs> normally, like, I agree what, with, I would agree with what you say because you're the teacher. Uh-huh. But now, because of this energy, I'm not so inclined to... Oh, I love it. <laughs> oh, I, I, li- I like that. Yeah. I don't want people to agree with me so much. Well, I know you don't mind. That's why I allow that. So, thank you. Bunny. I'm wondering if that energy is still anger. Is what? Is still anger, or is it something else? Is it the wave? The energy has been aroused, and it's the wave that's being, it takes its, has its momentum, and you ride the wave. So maybe it's not still being angry. Maybe it's just using the energy yeah. in your body. Yeah, so if it's, uh, so, the, so if the, if you catch the wave and use it, that's one thing. But if you provoke the anger so you have a wave, that's a different thing. Um, I guess I have a question. Um, um, I, I think that the first blush of anger or the first blush of greed or lust feels good. Um, I think it's very enjoyable. So when someone starts to get into an argument, that wave of anger feels very gratifying. And um, the same with, with other, the other clashes. And um, so it takes a good bit of skill and, and wisdom to see the long-term suffering that's going to come from that to you know, to uh, put that aside and, because of right. long-term benefit. Um, but it's, it's something that takes a lot of skill and wisdom. So. Yeah, I wonder. So, so for you, there's something pleasant about the initial arousing of anger. It could be the hook that some, pulls some people into it. I wonder. I wonder. I wonder if it's a mixed thing. Maybe there's both sensations in there. 
and we focus on the pleasant. I mean, that's one possibility. The other possibility, the Buddha gave a very graphic um, example that he said that um, apparently uh, if you have leprosy, it's very painful for the skin. And the way they get some relief is to put the hand, the, the limb into fire. And normally fire is very you know, painful, but it's, the contrast is so great that it does something and numbs something or something. But once a person is cured of leprosy, he said, that they would never put their hand in the fire. So I wonder, to identify that anger has a pleasant quality in it, I wonder that has to do with the context of the situation. And maybe it's pleasant in contrast to the state of mind that a person has. But in a, in a very different state of mind, uh, the first flush of anger would not feel pleasant at all. I wonder. Because I, I, don't, I don't identify in myself the idea that, that when I get, if I get angry, that I, I, I don't think I've ever enjoyed getting angry. I mean, I don't, I don't, myself don't relate to it. Or, you know, like watching a football game, as I mentioned before, or a tennis match where there's, you know, certain enjoyment, but in, in the aggression that's going on, I suppose, um, it's a competition. But the, the waters do get fouled after a while. You know, it's, it's the, the wake of those feelings. But, um, yeah, the, I think the initial rush is adrenaline and as she was talking about she wakes up and feels kind of like I'm, a, I'm awake I'm alive now and and uh, but you don't identify with that so you're no good to me <laughs> you're very good to me I was going to use the example of, say, going to a movie that has a lot of violence in it. So for a long time, I might go to those movies, and there is a certain pleasure that comes out of the adrenaline rush, uh, the way it works in certain centers in the brain. But it requires that I objectify everything that's going on in the movie. And there are some consequences to that. I don't know if I could explain them all right now, but I know that there are. So I often choose now not to do that or getting angry uh, for me, a lot of times when I get angry, it's not because there's a direct insult, like somebody's coming up and hitting me in the nose. Then, then it might be appropriate for me to get angry to protect myself. But in other times in relationships, nine times out of ten, if I get angry, it's because some principle that I'm clinging to was um, uh, uh, pushed against, or I feel afraid, or I feel my feelings feel hurt. So even though the anger might at the very first, do something in my brain that feels like, oh, wow, I'm ready to get in there. The fact of the matter is it was actually pain that caused me to get angry. There was actually some pain behind the anger. So for me, personally, I'd rather see what that is and not even go to the angry part. Because if I do go to the angry part, not only is it destructive to the relationship, but then I never get to deal with what it was that actually caused it. So this thread of conversation actually brings up a question for me. Um, a couple of times in the last month, I've run into situations where anger has arisen 
not because of necessarily something someone is doing to me, but because of behavior that I perceive as being harmful to others. And it has taken the anger, or the, at least that initial blush of it, to motivate me to take action, which is not necessarily something I would have done five or six years ago the way I was raised. It was quite passive in some ways. So what are some of the other ways that can step forward in a situation like that in that just instantaneous moment without feeding that impulse towards anger? I think you have to be careful about how we define anger before we go any further because uh, anger is a very vague term and uh, different people have different reference points for the word. Um, there's a, and if, it, if it's a kind of a wide, ca- it's a kind of umbrella term for some variety of things. Um, the anger that um, I think the Buddhist tradition is concerned about uprooting is the anger that has hostility as part of it. And uh, is there anger that doesn't have hostility? In the West, there's kind of this, you know, there's often just, quick to justify anger and um, righteous anger, for example. And so is there a place for, you know, righteous anger in Buddhism? Not if there's hostility. But if it's a ferocious no, maybe that maybe you know maybe the, for the Buddhists wouldn't call that anger, or you know, or if we or if we don't use we just drop the word anger entirely and limit ourselves to the word hostility, then we have a you know different discussion. But the conversation gets complicated if we keep using the word anger. I believe. But okay, that's helpful. Oh, I'm sorry. So I can think of, say, being angry about some political situation or some things I disagree with elsewhere. And that's like entirely different for me from being angry at a person or angry at a crowd. I mean, the, the second one sort of is like a physical sensation that just sort of destroys my body. I mean, so. Looking at thinking that in the company that I can't imagine any time I've ever gotten benefit or energy or pleasant sensation from that sort of anger. Just I mean, it's just personal, but that's I mean, it has such a huge physical impact on my body and it's entirely negative. So I might use the word anger for saying I'm upset or I'm angry about the the massacre. And It may be that I, um, I'm having a different experience than what you're talking about, so I just want to say that. But I've started to wonder whether there can be a habit of labeling bodily energy with the names of emotions and with thoughts, and whether it can just be bodily energy. So it's, a qu- it's an open question for me.
One of the one of the questions that I think that what I saw in Theravada Buddhism in Southeast Asia was the question: um, um, Is is there in fact always hostility in acts of killing? No. Let's let's you want to you want to explain what you think. I need to make sure I understand what we mean by hostility, which I'm assuming is some personal animus. What, what, how are you means, defining means hostility? In, in, intending to cause harm. In, intend, intending to hurt someone or cause harm. Well, um, in my experience, which is different from lots of people's experience, sometimes what you're intending to do is to stop something. And the way to stop it is to it will require some physically harming somebody, but that you have no personal anger. You're just attempting to stop. And if if there were other ways to get people to stop, or if they respond to other ways right. to get them to stop, they would have. So, I so that so I would say yes. It's so, you're, so your your opinion right. that there are times when uh, the police would shoot someone. There's no hostility, no harm. They're trying to just protect the people who are around there. And so That's right. And four seconds later, they have to go over and, and try to revive the person they just killed who was trying to kill them. So, I mean, these things get very complex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Or if I was defending myself, just me, you know, I'm, what I'm probably trying to do is to get someone to just stop what they're doing. So in the, Leave me alone. So the, 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 um, it's interesting that the, the, the rule for nonviolence is pretty high for monastics, but monastics uh, are, are allowed to strike out. They're allowed to hit. Uh, so it's kind of surprising. You know, you, they're dangerous. You, know, you can't only get too close to a monk because they might hit you. <laughs> and the... Um, but there's, uh, but there's uh, rules about when they can hit. They can never hit out of hostility. Um, they can only hit if they're trying to escape. So what me, what I, what I, how, how I interpret that is they're not allowed to stand their ground. But they can hit, uh, and they're not allowed to have weapons, so that's, you know. But they're allowed to, uh, to strike out, to hit, to push someone away forcefully. If someone, uh, uh, in order to escape and get out of trouble... But they can't do it. They, it has to be for escape, and it can't be done with hostility. Now, if that same principle can extends out into a police officer with a gun, I don't know. It's a. I kind of hope so. Certainly, because I think we de- our society depends on these on uh, peace officers, who protect us. There there is some research that says that it's really hard to train people to kill other people, that it it runs contrary to how human beings are wired, and that it's it's very difficult to, this is research that comes out of the military. Do do what? Comes out of the military, trying to train people to be prepared to kill somebody else. And, the, and that there was some amazing research about um, 
I forget, it may have been uh, Vietnam, but about uh, how many um, bullets were fired and how many missed? How many was? Many, many, many more missed. Misses. Misses. And, and the, and the, the, what, what you would have expected. And the, the thought was people were intentionally trying not to kill somebody else. So we have 15 minutes left. And uh, is there something uh, burning you'd like to ask around this idea of not killing in some area in life or something or a Buddhist perspective on it? Would you like to end with a short sit? What would you like to do here? <coughs> to feel complete. Sit. Yes, please. Sit. Oh, sit. Like. So let's take uh, about 10 minutes to sit.
I think of the issue of ethics to be a big part of it being an issue of what kind of heart do we want to live in. And uh, we're caretakers for our hearts. And do we want to live in a heart that is peaceful or kind or compassionate? Do we want to live in a heart that's agitated or angry or hateful, greedy? Where do we want to come from? And uh, I think the the um, the task of mindfulness, the possibilities of mindfulness, becoming more mindful, becoming more sensitive, uh, is one that will inevitably make us more ethical. Because as we become more mindful, we become a better caretakers and more uh, of this heart of ours. And as our heart becomes more sensitive, we also become more attentive to the people around us. And then we, I think, want to care for them as well. And so the question of what kind of heart we want to live in uh, also becomes what kind of world do we want to live in? And so how we live and how we behave and how we engage in the world has a lot to do with the world we create. So um, in a month, we'll do the second of the skillful actions, which is not taking what is not given. And... um, And I hope that in the course of this series that we do over these months, that uh, we'll discover together how we can explore this topic. Uh, It's not something that I don't feel I have that much expertise in. So we're kind of finding our way in this topic of the role of mindfulness, the connection between mindfulness, the interaction of mindfulness and ethics. Um, And I think it's a very enriching topic and a very important one. So thank you for coming. Uh, a couple of things. <clears throat> it's the custom here at IMC for people who practice here to care for the building, clean it. And we have, um, we don't have a cleaning service, right? It's just the people who practice here. And so it, it's nice to have about seven or eight people stay behind to do about 10 minutes of tidying up. There's seven or eight people who could stay and help with 